Father in heaven, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel, the hope of which we have sung of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come bearing the weight and the sorrow of, of, of life. We ask that you would give us hope as we hear your word. But, Lord, let us not, let us not step out from underneath the judgment, the true judgment against sin that your, your word brings against us. Let us feel the weight of it so that we can turn from sin and confess our faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that as we listen to your word, you'd give us ears that are attentive. You'd give me clarity of thought. Lord, we rejoice in the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so we pray in his name. Amen. Do you prefer a happy ending or a sad ending? Is a sad ending more satisfying than a happy because it feels more true to life? It feels more like that's the, the mess I really live in? New York Times bestselling author Marie Bostwick, she's thankful for the positive reviews that her, her books receive, but she regularly gets reviews about her stories, she says, that, that include what she calls a kind of backhanded compliment that reads something like this. In spite of the happy ending... It was a good book. In spite of the happy ending, the reviewer sort of acknowledging that, that it just doesn't feel true to life. It feels cliche. And, and, and this author recognizes that, that she shouldn't ignore the issues of life. She describes the personal, relational, societal, political, environmental, spiritual problems that she wrestles with in her books. But she argues that we still need happy endings. This is what she says. Readers still need, even crave, happy endings. Why? Because happy endings provide hope. Instilling the belief that obstacles can be overcome, love can last, fences can be mended, and good can triumph. Do you hear her argument? The reason she ends her novels with happy endings is because happy endings provide hope. But not every story has a happy ending. Even the struggles you face right now. I can't promise that your doctor's visit, your scheduled surgery will have the outcome you're praying for. I can't promise the broken relationships that litter your life will be restored. I can't promise that sorrow and sadness won't find you this week. And so what hope is there when the story doesn't have a happy ending? Because Judah's story here, the story of the people of God and the people of Israel in First and Second Kings, does not have a happy ending. Actually, everything seems lost. I mean, did you, did you hear the, the description of the overwhelming destruction that is brought against Judah? Everything they have is gone. Any power that was left in the kingdom of Judah is completely destroyed. We, we, we come into the last years of the reign of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. In verse 1, we find Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, 
has marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. We find him encamped outside the city, the city under siege, siege works built around it. People, we're told, in verse 3, are starving. There is nothing left. We find the city of Jerusalem then destroyed. As the army flees, as the walls are breached, the king Zedekiah captured, we're told. And then look at the last words we have about Zedekiah. Look at verse 7. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And then what did they do to him? Then they gouged out his eyes. So that the very last thing he saw was the death of his sons, the death of the dynasty. There is no hope left. The city walls are destroyed, not merely in the, in the siege, but, but verse 10 makes sure we know that after the battle was completely done, after the king was captured, after his sons are killed, well, the Babylonian army comes back. And make sure that it's not merely the, 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 the destruction that war itself brought, but they purposely come in and break down the walls around Jerusalem. There is nothing left here of this city. It has been destroyed. But the story is worse than that, because it's not merely the loss of political power. The temple itself is destroyed. The temple built by Solomon, the, the temple dedicated to the Lord, the place of God's presence, the place of sacrifice. What does verse 7 tell us? Or Jump to verse 9 with me. That the, the commander of the imperial guard comes, and in verse 9, he set fire to the temple of Yahweh. He burns it. Yes, previous kings have gotten away by, by just taking treasures out of the temple and paying off, even paying off Nebuchadnezzar. That was Jehoiachin, the, 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 the penultimate king, the one just before this. That was his plan, a plan that we saw even in the good kings like Hezekiah. But now the temple itself is burned and destroyed. And as we continue reading, we realize that it's not merely the, the movable treasures from the temple that are taken, but, but even the giant objects, these, these giant bronze uh, uh, figures, the, the, the pillars, the, the movable sea for, for the washing of the priests, this is now being destroyed as well. Look, look at verse 13. Let me continue reading where we finished. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord. And they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, shovels, wick trimmers, dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold or silver. The bronze from the two pillars, the sea, and the movable stands, which Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord, was more than could be weighed. Each pillar was 27 feet high. The bronze capital on top of one pillar was four and a half feet high and was decorated with a network of pomegranates of bronze all around. The other pillar with its network was similar. You see, the destruction is complete. Not merely that which is easily pocketable by soldiers, but the, the, they take the time and the, they bring in the, the, the bronze workers to tear apart even these giant pillars. Nothing is left. There will be no opportunity for sacrifice after the king of Babylon is done here. And it continues 
to be troubling. Because not only are the the instruments of worship destroyed, but the priests are slaughtered. Good verse 18. The commander of the guard took his prisoners, Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest next in rank, and the three doorkeepers. Though still in the city, he took the officer in charge of the fighting men and the five royal advisors. He also took the secretary who was the chief officer in charge of conscripting the people of the land and 60 of his men who were found in the city. Nebuzaradan, the commander, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. There at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, the king had them executed. So Judah went into captivity away from her land. Everything is lost. The priests are dead, the temple destroyed, the king exiled. Everything that Solomon had built, even the the presence of the Lord is removed. That's that's what we read back in chapter 24. As chapter 24 ends in verse 20, that we're told that, that all of this, the judgment of God coming, comes because of the Lord's anger, that all of this happened to Jerusalem and Judah, and in the end, God thrust them from his presence. Even the presence of God is removed from his people. Everything that Solomon built, everything that he had, the wealth, the power, the temple, the presence of God among his people, everything is gone. And the description of each of these final four kings of Judah is that he is evil, turning from the Lord. And the dominant theme of, this, of these books, First and Second Kings, originally one book, but just divided to make it easier to, to find your place in it, the dominant theme of First and Second Kings, when we see the evil of these kings, is we need a better king. This book leaves us with no hope in the Davidic dynasty here. That, that, that maybe there's here one of these kings. No, last week, Josiah was, our, was the last hope, a righteous king whose reign ended in the tomb. God has systematically worked through the, the reigns of these kings, exposing their hearts exposing their idols, the things that they put their trust in, and punishing them for their sin. And so if for Judah there is no promise of tomorrow, then what hope can you and I have? This week uh, we we lost the greatest preacher of the, the previous century. Billy Graham and the, and the, the image, the, the stories, the, the memories of him. Standing in pulpits before, before crowds of millions over his lifetime with, with a pointed finger pointing to people and saying, you have no promise of tomorrow. You may not make it home from this stadium tonight. Warning us. Warning his listeners with the, the, the word of God that, that you and I can't trust in the moments of this life. We can't trust in the circumstances of our life. We have to turn and put our trust in God himself. Put a personal trust in God's promise. The promise we've heard announced in our scripture readings, in our, in our prayers, in our songs. But where, where is the promise of 2 Kings 25? For Christmas 50 years ago, you could join a very special club. Astronauts had just orbited the moon, and and Pan Am Airlines 
offered customers the opportunity to join their first Moon Flights Club. Club members received a glossy membership card, and, and even though the dates for these first flights weren't yet scheduled, members were now on the official waiting list for the first flights to the moon. Along with their membership card, first Moon Flight Club members received a letter from their vice president of sales for Pan Am. He wrote, thank you for your confidence that Pan Am will pioneer commercial space travel. We have every intention of living up to this confidence. The enclosed card confirms this intent and formally recognizes your intrepid spirit. It also includes your serial number, which is your position of record on the official wait list. Pan Am signed up 93,000 people for their first flights moon club. All right, now, despite the brilliance of the, that kind of marketing campaign, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. The Pan Am able to say, we were the first to South America. We were the first airline to cross the Atlantic. We were the first to cross the Pacific, and we will be the first to take you to the moon. Despite the brilliance of that kind of marketing plan, Pan Am obviously never lived up to their promise, did they? No. If you have one of those cards, maybe as a, as a child you received one for Christmas, with excitement and, and joy. Well, it's a, it's a collector's item, but it, your spot in line is gone because Pan Am is gone. See, a promise is only as good as the one who makes the promise. Now, I actually don't even doubt the director of sales that their intent was genuinely to be the first commercial airline to take people on flights to the moon. They just didn't have the, the power or the resources to get that kind of project done. And so what about the promise of first and second kings? What about the promise that's here? that comes from the books of Samuel, from the reign of David. David the king to whom God made a promise that his kingdom would last forever. The promise of an eternal kingdom for David's descendants. What hope is there that God will keep that promise? Well, there's a whisper, a whisper of hope here in 2 Kings 25. After we finish reading, there's a, a description of, of an attempt to, to overthrow the, the appointed governor, which is described to us as complete foolishness. If the king of the land couldn't fight against Babylon, what hope do these few men assassinating a governor have? But then we read about another king, Jehoiachin. He's the grandson of that good king Josiah. He was the second to last of the kings of Judah. When he was taken off his throne and exiled into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin's uncle, named him Zedekiah, and put him on the throne. Zedekiah, who, who reigned for 11 years until his eyes were gouged out, and he too taken into exile. But the books end here with these words. Look at verse 27, this whisper of hope. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. In the year of evil Merodach, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon. Now, now let's stop there. If you name your son evil, 
you better make him king of the known world or a daredevil. Those are your only options if his name is evil. In the year that evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin from prison on the 27th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived. You see, it's only a whisper of hope. Because does this king Jehoiachin have a throne? No. He is merely like a servant at the king of Babylon's table. Yes, he has more than scraps now. As a, he's no longer a prisoner. But he is still under the control and authority of an evil pagan king. But yet it is a whisper, a whisper of hope. Because Zedekiah is gone. But Jehoiachin, he's still alive. The promise is not completely destroyed. The grandson of Josiah still lives. And in the New Testament, when the New Testament begins, when Matthew begins his, his Christmas sermon, Matthew begins with a list of the names of the, the, the ancestors of Jesus. It's a genealogy. And when, and when we hear in Matthew the name of Josiah, the, the righteous king, we find out that he is the father, the grandfather of Jeconiah, whose name is Jehoiachin. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. But that's not where the, the story ends. Yes, it's where the story ends in 2 Kings, but it's not where Matthew's sermon ends, his Christmas exaltation, because we read in verse 12 then, after the exile to Babylon. We read of Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the promised King who will come. We're told that Jesus is the one who is to that He is to have the name Jesus, the Rescuer, because God will save His people from their sins. See, this whisper of hope in 2 Kings 25 becomes a word of promise in the New Testament about the ministry of, of Jesus. And so it is good news for us in the face of the crises that we face, the sickness, the sadness, the despair. But, but, but listen to what I'm telling you. I'm not telling you that tomorrow all of your problems will be solved. No, 2 Kings 25 won't allow us to have some sort of blind optimism about the circumstances of life. No, tomorrow your only hope may be the whisper of a promise that the king still lives. But do you see what the, the biblical story does for us? It doesn't say that it, it, there is no promise of tomorrow, what tomorrow will bring or offer you. But there is a promise of that great day at the end of history when Jesus will come. That's the day way out there that you and I are looking forward to. Tomorrow may be a day filled with sorrow and sadness and tears and despair. 
but it is not the end of the story. So you and I are only in the middle of the story. Your today, your tomorrow is just the middle of God's story. See, we're not promised a tomorrow here on earth, but you are promised an endless series of tomorrows with God in his kingdom. The, the promise of Scripture is not merely that, that Jerusalem, that city, will be rebuilt after the exile. Yes, Nehemiah comes, he rebuilds the walls, they rebuild the temple, sacrifices continue, but that is not where your hope and mine lies. It, it lies there at the end of the story. The book of Revelation describes it for us in chapter 21 when John has this, has this picture of what God's kingdom looks like. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The whisper of hope in 2 Kings 25 becomes the certain word of hope. In the story of Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself for us, it becomes the shout of, of gospel truth when we see the end of the story. The God is not done. His promise remains. His king, the great grandson of David, the one to whom the eternal promise was made, reigns on his throne. His kingdom is certain and sure. And so don't put your hope in tomorrow. Don't put your hope in your circumstances. Put your hope in the certain promise that is true. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ reigns as the king in heaven. Jesus Christ is coming again. His kingdom lasts forever. That is the promise that you and I can shout. The whisper has become a gospel triumph. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we struggle to, to, to believe this truth. We hear it, and yet, yet we, we need you to give us faith to believe it. We wrestle with the, the words that are announced to us, that there is a new heaven, a new earth. For Lord, we, we see now merely by faith Yet we long for that day when we, will, when we will see with our eyes the return of Jesus the King. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us great confidence even in the sorrow and the sadness, even in the despair of these earthly days. Lord, that as we feel the weight of our sin, that we would turn from sin. Lord, even as I pray, I ask that you would do that work in the hearts of those that listen, that those that hear this gospel would turn from sin, heed the warning of your word and turn and put their trust in in your promised provision in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that is found only when we come to him by faith alone. Lord, I pray that as we come now to this table, this kingdom table of Jesus Christ, that we would see the sure and certain promises that are made to us, that you would strengthen us in faith, that you would encourage us as a church. Lord, even in the witness of the, 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 the missionaries that share the gospel this day, 
that have already done so around the world. Lord, that you would make us bold and, and urgent in our witness for this gospel message. That we would shout the truth that Jesus Christ is the King who forgives sins, that Jesus Christ is the King who reigns in heaven. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the forgiveness that is ours because of Jesus, because he suffered and died in our place. And so we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who saves us from our sins. Amen.